Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by our health columnist and a GP, Dr. Phil Whitaker, to discuss his experiences of the pandemic. So for this special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Phil Whitaker, a GP based in Radstock, Somerset, and the New Statesman's health columnist. During the pandemic, Phil's been one of our key voices telling us what's going on on the front line. And he's been writing about everything from the crisis in care homes to the long-term symptoms of COVID-19 that some of his patients are experiencing. Now, in one of your columns over the summer, Phil, I think you finally managed to get a break away from surgery. You wrote about looking back to the beginning of the pandemic and you remember realising that you, you'd encountered your first patient with COVID-19 and you hadn't had any PPE on then and you'd, and you'd had this patient face to face and you kind of reflect on how different it was back then. So can you take us back to those early days? You know, what was it like when you were first encountering the virus and, and what were those first patients like for you? You say you sort of feared for your safety for the first time as a doctor. Yeah, that's very true. That time getting up on a short holiday in the summer was... Um, I hadn't really anticipated it, but it was a, a kind of moment to, to look back and reflect and, and think about where we'd come over the, the preceding few months. That patient, the first patient that I encountered with, with COVID was actually at a time when it was still officially sort of being fairly well contained, except that I think everybody now realises, looking back, that it was being transmitted in the community from sometime in February, certainly, although it wasn't appreciated at the time. I was working out of hours, and at that stage, 111 call handlers were still allowed to book people in for appointments without a, a clinician's involvement. And they sent up a, a guy in his 20s, and the story was that he had a, a chest infection being treated with antibiotics, but it wasn't getting any better. And I sort of called him into the wait from the waiting room and uh, talking to him, and it started to dawn on me the kind of symptoms he was describing were not typical things that I would be used to seeing over the years. And actually, it started to dawn on me that what he was describing were the kind of particular symptoms that, that COVID typically causes. And there was a very, very chill moment when I, I was just sitting in the room completely, no mask, no gloves, no nothing, just sort of doing my kind of job as I used to do it. And it just a very chill moment when it dawned on me that this guy in front of me almost certainly had COVID. So I think... Uh, yeah, I, rem I remember staying very far back, very well socially distanced from him and uh, just sort of calmly suggesting that we uh, we adjourned and uh, I reconvened with PPE in place. And then from then on, was it sort of a flood of cases? Yeah, probably that was, even looking back, I'm, I'm struggling slightly to put the time frames together. That was in the early part of March, I would say. 
And I think the volume of cases for us in the southwest didn't pick up until in the probably about two to three weeks later in the later part of March. I knew people in London who were talking about what was going on there and London was very much in the vanguard. So, you know, I knew that it, it was coming, but it was kind of late, late into March. I mean, the southwest never got anything like the numbers that London or the Midlands had at that time, but it was still a very, very noticeable wave of COVID patients. Would you be mind telling us about the sort of the most difficult moments of the height of the pandemic, the most difficult moments personally and the most challenging cases that you've seen? Yeah, I think personally the most difficult was the one patient that I, of mine who I've known for years who I lost definitely due to, to COVID. There are probably a couple of other patients who I, I think probably also die from COVID, but I don't, I don't know for certain. But yeah, there's a, a, a guy who, who was only in his, not actually very different age to me in his early 50s. And he had a, a chronic chest complaint that I looked after him for probably the best part of 12 years, I would guess. And every year he would get a couple of what we call exacerbations. So he would get a, an infection on his chest because of his lung condition. So I dealt with dozens of, of these exacerbations over the years. And I knew him very well. And we, we kind of knew what to expect when he got it. I knew what to do, etc. And then he got what looked on the face of it to be an exacerbation, just like we dealt with before. And I treated it in, in the same kind of way. And he was obviously entirely confident that he knew what was what. And then very, very, very shockingly, within 48 hours of that, he died suddenly and basically did, as the story unfolded post-mortem-wise, did have coronavirus. And he suffered one of the blood clotting complications. So although COVID, its kind of initial reputation was causing viral pneumonia, really serious lung infection which you know certainly he had but quite often it, it will cause the blood clot to clot abnormally and uh, that can cause things like heart attacks and strokes and clots going to the lungs which was actually what happened to my patient and it was it was a real shock and it was something that I hadn't even known about we didn't know that about Covid at that stage so I think that was the most difficult thing for me because he's somebody that I knew very well and I felt particularly in retrospect that I just hadn't had the knowledge to give him the best chance. I think if I'd known now what I know, I would have had a lower threshold for actually sending him to hospital. And it might have been a different story. It might not. But I think about that still, actually. That's very sad to hear. And thanks for telling us about it. It must have been incredibly tough, particularly when you're still, even now, still learning about new ways that the virus manifests itself. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about that? What did you think the virus was like at the beginning? And how has your perception of the virus changed over time? And that's been the, the most professionally fascinating, but also challenging part of it, really, because at the outset, what we knew from, we thought we knew, I would say, from China, from Italy, was that it was a, a viral pneumonia, lung infection. Some people were very sick with it. I think when it first hit the UK, we understood about the age, the risk of age and the risk of some of the chronic lung conditions. And for the rest of the time, we kind of thought that, you know, other people might get it, might have a, a sort of flu-like illness and would recover. And, and you know, I can remember Chris Whitty, the, the chief medical officer, when he was talking early in the UK pandemic about the strategy, the approach, that was very much it, that it was going to cause some pretty serious disease in a very small percentage of people. 
and everybody else would get something pretty mild, fairly trivial, quick recovery, end of story. And then I think the two things we've come to appreciate over the course of the, the last six months has been number one, that it's not just a lung condition, that it affects many, many organs of the body and actually causes fatalities not just from lung involvement but through blood clotting and effects on heart muscle etc so you know I've seen some quite young patients who didn't really have particularly serious lung involvement but who threw off highly abnormal clotting problems both of whom survived in my experience I'm pleased to say but I do know of others who didn't so I think one thing's a bit appreciating this this what we call a multi-system disease that it's not just a lung problem and it's it's uh, can be serious to people across the age spectrum in in ways that we hadn't anticipated. And I think the other thing is is realizing over time that it is not for many people a short couple of weeks of flu-like illness and then you're back to fighting fitness and that it seems to cause in a, a minority of patients, often of people who have otherwise been fit and well, athletic and in very good health, months and months of really debilitating chronic ill health, which, which has been called now been called long COVID, a sort of variant disease pattern. So yeah, appreciating the severity, the multi-system nature of it, and the capacity of this virus to cause ongoing problems in a, a substantial minority of patients. Phil, would you mind telling us a bit more about your experience professionally of long COVID? You wrote a column recently for the New Statesman about how now COVID-19, sort of to mark the fact that you're moving back to a fortnightly column in the magazine, COVID-19 is no longer the thing that you'll necessarily be writing about every single week, but that it has entered the shelf of, of all of the diseases that you deal with regularly. And COVID-19 is is one with huge numbers of complications. You mentioned that there are about 100 long-term symptoms of it that could potentially be attributed to COVID-19. And it's still unclear that the, the evidence is, isn't completely nailed down. But you, you mentioned in that column a really interesting case of a patient presenting with symptoms that you couldn't really explain would you mind telling us about that and about how you're experiencing and encountering long COVID in your practice? And just to take long COVID as a perhaps a big group, firstly, I've probably had about on my on my patient list, I've probably had about half a dozen people I know who've had what I what would be fitting into that term long COVID. And for most of those, a couple of them had quite severe disease and were hospitalised, one of whom was actually ventilated. And they, I think, have been less of a surprise in a way, because I, I think that we've seen this with other serious illnesses where people have been on intensive care, ventilated life support, that they can take a very, very long time to rehabilitate and, and may never get back to where they were previously. Then there's this other group of patients who, as I've had probably about four to five on my patient list, who never really got that sick, but they kept getting this repeating pattern of symptoms which we had no idea about could happen or I had no idea could happen and then these patients would be contacting me just saying I keep going back to the same thing my breathing my chest is heavy my breathing's difficult diarrhea I feel really fluy and achy and I had no idea what was going on and and week by week and month by month it, it became really apparent to me that they were experiencing something 
that was very definitely virally related. It, the symptoms they had were, were so exactly what they'd had in, at the outset, and they just kept coming back again and again and again. They might be well for a day or even a few days, and then they'd just be back to square one. So that's this other pattern of, of long COVID, which I still have one patient who's not yet recovered and the others have all, but it took maybe four or five months for some of them to get better. So that's still a, a kind of evolving picture. And then the, the patient that I read about recently you're alluding to, I'm at the moment unsure exactly how he fits in to the picture, but he was a patient who wasn't poorly enough to go anywhere in the hospital. He had a, a long COVID pattern not as long as some of my other patients. I would say he was better after maybe two, two and a half months. And then he was fine for, yeah, another two, two and a half months or so. Then he started getting symptoms which are, are, are really easy to diagnose because there's, there's only one thing that causes them. So he he contacted me saying that it felt to him like at the outset that his, that his feet were on fire, burning feeling and his feet really unpleasant kind of symptom and that's caused by the the nerves that supply the feeling to the feet and to the lower part of the leg sort of malfunctioning something called peripheral neuropathy we see that quite commonly with diabetes and there are some other associations with alcohol abuse and uh, some other things like Lyme disease that can cause that so I, I knew what it was and then really rapidly over only days it progressed in a way that I've never encountered before I know it can happen from textbooks but I've never seen it before and it was involving his face his tongue his hands his arms as well as his feet and legs and I investigated with all the tests that we would do for peripheral neuropathy all of which came back fine so that was kind of a bit mysterious but also not unheard of although again I'm talking about textbooks I've not encountered this in my practice but he actually posed me the question he said could this you know, he'd had that kind of two and a half months or so of long COVID. And he actually posed the question to me, could this be due to COVID? And I thought, well, I don't know. <laughs> but then there's an awful lot I've not known about this virus. And I did some kind of book work or, or internet work. and came across a study from America where this researcher had kind of teamed up with one of the, the sort of social media long COVID groups. And she'd surveyed, I think it was about... 1500 or so long COVID patients and, and essentially just sort of said to them, what things have you noticed? Now, this is not that people can criticise this kind of research on a purely scientific basis. I, I get that. But it is also valuable in, in at least starting to define what the problems might be. But what I was struck with out of that group of 1500, 1600 long COVID patients, about a quarter were reporting peripheral neuropathy symptoms that my patient was experiencing so that kind of raises a little bit of a flag for me so I couldn't put his symptoms down to a, a recognized cause it followed fairly hard on the heels of him definitely having Covid and watch this space I mean it, for me it's the, my first experience but I, I'm sort of at least seeing some research evidence that suggests that, that peripheral neuropathy or involvement of the nervous system is part of the, the suite of things that this virus can do so it's fascinating he's not fully recovered he's better than he was but actually he's still got ongoing symptoms so it's a kind of evolving story there which has been the story of this since February. Poor thing I hope he he does recover soon and you know you said watch this space there about the long Covid symptoms but there's also the prospect of 
coronavirus over winter coming up as well. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out yet. And I think last time we spoke, because you've kindly helped me with some of my reporting over the pandemic, you'd just been doing flu vaccination clinics, hadn't you, to try and make sure that your patients are as protected for the winter period as possible. What are you expecting winter to look like? And and are you apprehensive? That's a really interesting question. I don't know the hard data on this, but actually a colleague of mine was talking to me just this week. And I do want to find out a bit more about this, but he indicated that actually New, New Zealand, sort of southern hemisphere, their flu season has been highly unusual this year. But very, very few cases, which they are putting down to the kind of social distancing, mask use that is being followed because of coronavirus. So the one way of looking at the winter ahead is that we may get a kind of COVID bonus, if I could put it like that, a horrible term maybe, but in that the kind of social measures that we've got in place may actually protect us from a lot of the other significant winter viruses. So that might make the winter less of a, a problem than it might be. Certainly the vaccination, the flu vaccination campaign, well, everybody's pushing hard to get as many people covered as possible. So that's an an additional sort of card that I guess we're playing to try and sort of minimise non-COVID demand on the the health service. But, you know, those things might bring in some kind of positive benefits. But I am, I think everybody looking at what's going on in the UK at the moment is concerned that that might be dwarfed by COVID. It's picking up across Europe. It's picking up here. It's like deja vu. You know, we've sat looking at France and Spain and and some other European countries a bit ahead of us this time around. Case numbers going up and we seem to be following suit, which is kind of identical to what we sort of experienced back in March. So I think at the moment there are some indicators that maybe we're slowing things down with what we're doing. And then we've got some indicators that the data is very suspect at the moment Mm -hmm. and that we may be underestimating what's going on. So Yeah, I'm not sure where we are, but that's my worry is that COVID is going to take off big time over the winter, which which is what respiratory viruses do. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And of course, we're in this, this kind of strange situation. It must be strange for you that basically everybody has an opinion on how we should be containing the spread of this disease. It's probably an area that were it not for a pandemic that is touching everyone's life, normally that would be reserved for doctors and experts. 
but it's become a part of our national conversation. The the extent to which we should be locking down, the extent to which we should be opening up. I just wonder, I mean, firstly, is that strange or frustrating for you as someone with professional experience of this, that there's so much often kind of badly informed debate around it? And also, without necessarily inviting you to give a full-on political critique of of the UK's response, because I don't I don't know whether you would want to be doing that or not. But with your sort of professional hat on, are there particular things that maybe looking at other countries or particular ideas that you think we should be looking at, or particular things that we haven't been doing so well? Do you have any? I suppose do you have any sort of insights into how we balance this tricky period of wanting to contain this virus while also not seeing the economy suffer so much? (laughs) One of the reasons that um, I decided to go back to fortnightly and to to kind of um, try and write about some things other than COVID is that I I was starting to feel a little bit like a crack record. So, you know, one of the things that I've I've kind of come to again and again is, is dismay really at the the UK handling of the pandemic and it just feels to me like we're stuck in a, a route that has been shown to be flawed and we just haven't learned to do something different and I would characterise that by what is it it's something about the centre of government believing that it needs to be in control of this and needs to be driving this and it's instinctive ideological possibly solution is to turn to the private sector so you know we have something which we're calling nhs track and trace which is nothing to do with the nhs that's to do with outsourcing companies and the i mean this is not my original thought this has been said again and again by people with far more experience and expertise than me but the way we deal with this with minimizing the economic harm is by tracking tracing and isolating of people with coronavirus and their contacts and you know that's been why other countries that have managed this much better than us have managed it and there have been many many voices in the UK that for months have been saying that is what we have to do that is the way forward and we still don't have it and we don't seem minded to to change course in any way shape or form it sort of demoralizes me so I kind of feel a bit like a cracked record we seem to reach for lockdown measures and kind of community-wide measures which you know they inevitably have the bigger economic impact whereas you we look at South Korea who you know from the outset they've had a, a, a very different approach which is absolutely majoring on tracking tracing and isolating and supporting you know people to to isolate and have had very few of the kind of global measures and they've done very well, and there are there are many other countries that have achieved that or have had a much more of a bias towards that kind of approach. That would be my critique, and I don't see any evidence that the UK is going to going to change course on that. Well, we haven't actually heard this so much recently, but one of the early criticisms of the testing program was that it hasn't been sufficiently embedded in local communities and the central government hasn't been making enough use of local health services of GPs um, and hasn't been communicating very well with with local councils. I think they they have tried to improve that over the summer, 
but I'd be interested to hear what your experience has been of that and um, given you know as a as a local GP you are kind of at the heart of a nexus of local health care do you feel like beyond seeing patients with symptoms and addressing their concerns do you think that you have been sufficiently used for want of a better word to deal with the tracking and the tracing and and the wider response the short answer that's no we haven't been well used at all literally this past week really quickly to say so in our area which is similar to actually many places around the country the health service itself has organized into hot and cold basically so hot is dealing with covid and stuff that could be covid and cold is trying to deal with the rest of healthcare and trying to separate those two things out so we've done that we've been operating a kind of hot service for assessing people with possible covid right through since late march and we are expanding its capacity again because the numbers are picking up having dropped off quite a lot over the summer and literally it is this last week that we have actually on a pilot basis been able to take covid tests which is to me stunning so right up until that's insane october we've been assessing people we've been saying Mm. yep you know we think you've got covid and this is what you need to do and by the way, you know, hey, do you fancy a drive feeling poorly as you are for around about an hour to Bristol Airport, which is our kind of closest drive through place? Or do you want to kind of take your luck on the Internet so you can get a home test? And people kind of look askance and, well, you can't do a swab here. No, we can't. Sorry. I mean, that's just a little example. So and then, you know, it's been testing going on. It took through till probably six weeks ago for me to actually start getting my patients swab results actually sent through to go onto their medical records and that's still erratic i know some patients who i know have gone and been tested they've told me their test results verbally but they haven't come through so that's still really patchy but just on a wider note wind the clock back till much much earlier in the year and in a way this is how i think we we would much better have played this was to at the outset say you know we've got a health service that's in every community We've got public health that is in every community run by local councils. Every area has got a director of public health. And we've got all that infrastructure, we've got all that expertise in every bit of this country. And what we needed to do, I think, was to say, okay, hot and cold. So every area split yourselves into two services. And we're going to give people the opportunity to work just cold if they've got health problems or risk factors but I know from my experience that we would have had enough people volunteering to work on the hot side of the health service and then we should have been swabbing so people had no further to go than a surgery locally or a a facility locally to get swabs done so really easy and we should have had our local public health teams coordinating pandemic responses in their area yep support money resources logistics from central government absolutely but the idea of setting up a whole nationwide service from scratch operating like a call center which i mean we've seen this happen and fail with 111 i mean 111 don't get me started but it's a problem that um, <laughs> it just sh- it shows you you should not be running a health service with your frontline people with no clinical training operating computers and that's kind of what track and trace is doing to people don't have the, the knowledge, the experience, the commitment that, ah, don't get me started. Anyway, it's, it's just madness <laughs> to try and set up something from scratch in the middle of a pandemic when you've got everything there 
the infrastructure there. But ideologically, public service seems not to be the way the Conservative government thinks. They think, oh, big outsourcing company, throw money at them, they can sort it. And they just haven't ever done it. And they haven't done it this time either. Well, that is, that's, I mean, I was going to say that's a good note to end on, but it's a rather terrifying note to end on in reality. (laughs) But thank you so much for being so candid and so open about your experiences and your insights uh, into the pandemic, Phil. We really appreciate your time and we'll let you get back to your patients now. Thank you for inviting me on. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleague Alva Ray and Dr Phil Whitaker. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.